This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. Since the launch of my podcast, I've also recently released a number one best-selling book called One for the Road, which can be purchased via Amazon. It covers my own personal story and also offers lots of valuable tips on how you too can learn to kick alcohol out of your life for good. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, share and leave a review. Our amazing sponsors for this season are Tweak Life. Do you want to make a positive change to your mental, physical or financial health and not sure where to start? Tweak Life have brought together all areas of well-being in a free, easy-to-use website. You can find their link in the show notes and on my bio via my Instagram, at SoberDave. My guest today on One for the Road is a multi-award-winning tour manager who has worked with the likes of Coldplay, Robbie Williams, Depeche Mode and my own personal hero, Roger Waters. He is the co-founder of the wonderful charity Music Support, who provide help for those who work in UK music affected by mental health and addiction. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to you the amazing Frank C. Good morning, Frank C. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. It's really great to have you on here today, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on here. It's uh, um, very kind of you. I've been listening to your stuff. Very interesting. A nice wide variety of people on there. Yeah, that's what I try to do. We all suffer in our own way from this, don't we? And um, we had a chat the other day and you were in a lovely flat in Brighton overlooking the pier and it's my favourite place. So... Without you knowing, I'm going to come and have breakfast with you one day, mate. <laughs> You're welcome to come and have a, have a very sober breakfast. Yeah, wonderful. Like. Wonderful, mate. Um, so, yeah, as as per usual, I like to go in from the beginning. Uh, I'd love to know more about you and uh, where you grew up and what that was like for you and when your drinking started and go from there, if you don't mind, mate. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, um, I was, though I was born in Birmingham, uh, I moved to the West Country um, when I was four years old and lived outside Bristol. 
a little town called Nailsea. And my parents, my dad was a postman and my mum was uh, a secretary, no sort of, uh, had a very happy childhood, certainly no uh, no issues there or anything to really moan about. And I think drinking probably started for me when I was uh, probably about 10 or 11. Uh, you used to be able to go down to the pubs in those days and there'd be the, the main bar, there'd be the... Um, the lounge, as it was called, sounded very posh, but normally because they had chairs in there or something, uh, or ashtrays. And uh, and then in the middle, there was always an off-license that you could go in. And uh, and certainly where we lived, it was a, it was a, a little village, and you could go in at, uh, you know, at any age, really, and say that you were getting some um, booze for your parents, or, you know, no one really sort of questioned it. And, of course, being West Country, we used to be able to get cider. And cider in those days was um, probably a shilling a, a pint or a shilling a flagon. You know, I mean, you could get it with your pocket money. So it wasn't really, didn't have to save up. It's not the expensive thing it is today. And probably sort of just started uh, as as most of our friends, you know, drinking that. I was listening to one of your friend, uh, one of your um people chatting the other day saying about barley wine you know i also started mm. with uh barley wine god knows why i mean that's probably barley wine was probably invented for people that sort of uh, put them off drinking wasn't it because it tasted so disgusting yeah but was so strong at that age as well you yeah. know i was in a holiday camp in bournemouth and i I, I was about 15 or 16 and i just went up to the bar and ordered it and it was in the small cans wasn't it yeah well, uh, in the bottles, they used to do like a third, uh, a third of a pint or something in a bottle. Yeah, absolutely lethal, though, wasn't it? Oh, and yeah, same sort of thing. Thirteen or four. We used to go down the bottom of the school playing fields, you know, and somebody would have got a few bottles of barley wine, and you down them. And yeah, I mean, it was it was like rocket fuel, you know, mm. and uh, uh, and we were also smoking weed as well at the same time. So uh, <laughs> no wonder I didn't do that well at school. Uh, <laughs> had a lot of other distractions. But I think you know my. I would say that my um, my alcohol intake in those days was not that different from a lot of other sort of kids around the same age. You know, we were doing drugs as well. We were smoking, we were doing acid and and whatever. But it was that was what was going on. That's what all of our friends did. It wasn't anything out the uh, out the ordinary, really. Well, we didn't really know that much about it, did we? No, not like nowadays. There's a lot of um, kids growing up now, and they they're more health conscious. But back in the day, it's just what we did: smoke a load of Rothmans and flipping get drunk, and it was yeah. what we did, wasn't it? Well, you couldn't, you know. It was how to, how would you find out about the dangers and all the rest of it? You know, you'd have to go to the library. There wasn't an internet, yeah. or there wasn't anything, you know. Or you'd ask your peers. And like I said, my parents weren't particularly big drinkers. So it wasn't like, you know, there'd be like my mum used to have a sort of glass of sherry every now and again. And my dad would have a, a little tot of whiskey or something. But uh, there was, you know, booze was, as I got a bit older, we sometimes used to have like um, a glass of wine with Sunday lunch, but it was never, you know, a big thing in our house at all, I'd say. Um, and it was, you know, my, my, sort of relationship with alcohol i would say was relatively sort of normal and i don't know about respectful but you know that's just 
it didn't seem like over the top and I didn't really know anyone that was, you know, we obviously you get pissed at parties or, or something, but it was more the norm kind of relationship, you know. And then I sort of at a relatively early age, early 20s, I got into the music business as uh, I worked for a sound company in Bristol. And uh, we started doing sort of odd shows with people. I mean, at the time, I was still driving and uh, and I used to, uh, you know, we used to smoke a load of weed while we're driving because drinking was, you know, you wouldn't want to be pissed and, and driving, but smoke, stoned and driving seemed okay. But, of course, alcohol um, and drugs to a certain extent, but certainly alcohol was so readily available. It was on all the sort of dressing room riders that bands would have. You know, it was always there. And uh, it just seemed to be one of those things that that was in plentiful supply and also free, you know, because mm-hmm. it was provided. Well, you, you think it's free. Someone's paying for it somewhere. But, you, you know, to all intents and purposes, it's free because it's provided by someone. It's there and it's got to be drunk. And if you drink it all, you go to the next show the next day and someone's done the same again. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, this is pretty brilliant, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, so I would say that my... Um, my relationship with alcohol was much more of a sort of slow burn rather than sort of, again, you know, from listening to some of your um, other um, people chatting, you know, they started sort of full on at an early pace. You know, it was never like that with me. And in, in some ways, perhaps that's why I didn't notice how bad it was because it was creeping up and it was mm. accumulative, you know, it mm. wasn't a sort of smack in the face or realizing that you're in this sort of terrible situation. It was not really realizing at all, you know, and, and as you become aware later in life, you know, when you start telling people how much you drink, you know, and that you think is something that's relatively normal. They're like, what the, <laughs> are you kidding? You know, yeah. Yeah. a normal, a normal day's intake. But, um, so, yeah, so it was early, early days, slowly, slowly. And I was, you know, and like I said, I was I was sort of driving a lot of the time. I was, uh, was um, touring around. I was sort of responsible for looking after the sound on shows. Um, but as I started moving through the gears in the music business and became like a production manager and a tour manager, so then my, my role would change. And it it was more sort of traveling with the artists and being around them and staying in all the hotels and the dinners and all the rest of it. And like I say, booze was just something that was so sort of in your face the whole time and, and literally, you know, as much as you want. And it was encouraged, you know, you weren't, nobody would sort of look and say, well, he looks like he's drinking a lot. You know, it's like, get some in, go and let's mm. get pissed. Let's get down the pub, you know, on your, your days off, you go and get pissed, you know, and, uh, and on your gig days, you get pissed as well. And after the show, you'd all go and get pissed. And, and it was, it was the culture. Really, you know, it was part of, of being in the business, being with musicians. It was all very much uh, an accepted thing, you know, and, and certainly something that I, I didn't really question. Yeah, that's what I get from all my other guests in the music game, that uh, it, it's just rife. And, and it was the pre-drinks before the gigs, they would go on stage. Um, James Vetcalodi from Death of Anna said that he was singing, belting his heart out and the mic was 10 foot away he was just standing <laughs> looking at nothing in the corner because he was so drunk 
yeah, uh, yeah. when he was on this gig in front of thousands of people, you know, and it, but it was all a laugh. And, it, and it's like, when you look back, like tour manager for who you've represented is huge job and responsibility. Yet, well, you know, you, did you find you just somehow just did it? Well, it was, yeah. I mean, it became sort of second nature to me. You know, I mean, you're saying about about people being drunk. I know a, a very famous artist who used to uh, be so pissed on stage. He'd walk over to the side of the stage. He'd have a bucket, you know, for him to throw up in. Jesus. And then he'd walk back on and uh, carry on with the rest of the song, you know. Hell. And it wasn't like people sort of, it wasn't, let's have a word with him about his drinking. It's make sure the bucket's at the side of the stage, <laughs> yeah. you know. That's priority. the kind of, yeah, that's the, the priority, you know. But yeah. uh but yeah, I mean, I, I, I when I, very sort of early on, I got a job working with Depeche Mode, you know, who at the time it was they did their first tour and uh, and it was all sort of you know thought it would it lasted a few weeks and thought that'd be it. But then a few months later, they got another tour and then another tour and then another tour, you know. And I ended up working with them full time and moved to London and ended up uh, being with them for nearly eighteen years, you know, and they had this meteoric sort of rise. Um, it's funny, in, in the UK, people still kind of think that they're painters and decorators, you know, rather than the sort of massive, I mean, they've just put a tour on sale now in, in the US and the UK, they're doing all football stadiums, you know, I mean, they're mm. absolutely enormous. Um, and, you know, the parting, it was also at the time of ecstasy and all the rest of it, you know, we would literally, in fact, I was, I was chatting to one of the, um, one of the guys the other day, I had lunch with him and, and, uh, it's really funny because we were saying we were actually pretty organized, you know, we wouldn't get pissed or out of it before the show, but as soon as the show was over, you know, you drop an E and you go out clubbing and, and mm. you get twatted, you get back to the hotel at like seven or eight in the morning, um, just about able to walk to your room, have a few hours kit, then down to the airport, get on the plane, fly to the next place. And so it would be, you know, day mm. after day after day. And for, you know, some of the tours would last for 15 months. Mm. And uh, I even uh, one of the one of the the guy I was out with, uh, I remember him saying to me, "I said I'll meet you down in the bar for a drink." And he said, "I'm not coming down." And I said, "What do you mean you're not coming down the bar? We always have a drink." He said, "I've just sort of looked at my diary and I've realised I've been out drinking every day for a year, and we've been on tour that time, you know, and just every day down to the bar, have a few drinks, go out and have dinner, get twatted, you know, and." Nobody questioned it, you know, and like I said, it was encouraged. It was, it was um, provided you could do the show and do the gig, then you were fine, you know, and I became very, very good at doing it and also very good at covering up um, how much alcohol I was, um, I was drinking. But again, just it's, it was par for the course, you know, and, uh, I was starting to um I was starting to drink not only sort of every day you know and going through that thing of of uh let's have a day off today and uh and then you'd phone someone up and oh you know we're going down the pub or whatever and you go down and oh no I'm not drinking I'll go and have one all right then you know and uh, yeah it's hard isn't it like it's, I- it's difficult 
Because you're in that cycle, aren't you? After I've been there many times where I feel absolutely rotten inside. Yeah. And I thought, I've got to give myself a chance here. And then it'd be, oh, mate, what are you talking Come on, let's just have one down the boozer and whatever. And you, yeah. you just immediately talk yourself out of it, you know. And But did you ever have conversations or was it just like the accepted thing that you, you're all just raging, piss-edge? And, or did you um, ever have a discussion amongst each other? No, I think I think people would sort of talk about. I mean, it was it, it was. I would say it was more like the badge of courage of of drinking, you know, and talking about. Oh God, you're really out of it, like. And I mean, I I can well. I remember that I had some blackouts, you know. Um, I don't remember what happened in the blackouts and all the rest of it, but you would, you know, you go down in the in the morning and people would be like, "Oh fucking hell, you were a bit sort of naughty mm. last night, weren't you?" And you're like, "What do you mean?" You know, and and not realizing. And again, you know, if ever there was a sort of tap on the shoulder or a thing to say, "Look, you know, you need <laughs> you need to look at this," it's yeah. like, but but more, it was just like having a laugh about how out of it you were, and and or not just not paying attention to it and just carrying on and cracking on and and yeah i mean the the pressure is it's almost like you you kind of like embarrassed not to have a drink or you don't want to sort of stand out or you or you feel um like it's going to be weak not to have one you know and 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 of course as as we know if you you know if you try not to have a drink or the rest of it then that's just holding up a mirror to people who do have a problem you know they yeah. don't want to get there so uh but of course again at that stage you don't really realize you know it's all it's all part and parcel of uh of what's going on and um and I, after I'd finished the sort of depression while I was still doing a bit of madness, um, I then started working with Robbie Williams. Um, and he was just, uh, he'd just gone solo and I got the job sort of working with him. And that was brilliant, you know, fantastic guy, real good sort of fun. He, he was at that time, he was still drinking and, uh, and having sort of problems, you know, I mean, it's very well sort of documented his, his issues with, uh, with addiction and everything and uh and it, you know it was a real sort of struggle for him and in fact his manager um well he's got two managers um tim clark uh, uh david entoven is uh unfortunately no longer with us but he was a very big um person in aa and all the rest of it he was a guy that was from the 60s managing like emerson lake and palmer and roxy music and all those kind of things famously sort of uh came from very sort of well-to-do background lost everything and then sort of had a second thing with the with the robbie stuff you know but had been in the program for a long long time and i even remember having a chat with him once and saying you know do you think i'm an alcoholic because i was obviously starting to question it then you know but not knowing what to do and uh and he used to say oh no old boy you know you're not a you're not an alcoholic you're just a heavy drinker you know but uh, it was like he, of course he was thinking that because he didn't know how much i was drinking you know because yeah. i was hiding it from him as you do so uh so it was, I was realizing it was starting to be an issue. And in fact, there were a couple of times I remember being at um, Top of the Pops 
once and uh and the bbc have got that they used to have that at the old tv center they had that bar upstairs where you get subsidized food and booze you know and what a brilliant thing to have not only a sort of bar at work you know that's why probably all the bbc people are on the piss but uh but it's subsidized as well you know i mean hallelujah this is like nirvana um so i used to you know and again the music business famous for a lot of hanging around, you know, there's a lot of hours to fill, a lot of downtime. So, you know, you'd get there early in the morning, have to do a sound check or something, then not needed till the evening. So what would you do? You'd just go up to the bar and, and crack on up there, you know. Uh, and not, you know, not go up and sort of hammer straight in, but gradual, gradual, you know, but by the time you'd left, you'd maybe done a couple of bottles of wine or something, mm. you know. And, and yeah, I remember once, uh, we would, I was doing, uh, Jonathan Ross show. And as we were sort of getting the cars together, David, the manager turned around and he just said, you're fucking pissed tonight. And I was so outraged that he had dared to call me pissed, you know, even though I, even though I knew I was pissed, <laughs> but that wasn't the point, you know, how dare. <laughs> How dare he suggest that I was yeah. pissed? And I remember to call you out. Jeez. I still remember now, you know, feeling the sort of outrage, and even to the point where he'd sort of like gone off in a huff and, and sort of, you know, had this with me. And I, I was trying to sort of phone him and like, you know, have it out with him. Like, how dare you call me pissed? You know, in that drunken <laughs> way. And luckily, I couldn't get through to him. You know, but of course, you know, then that would pass, and I'd sort of carry on and and sort of carry on. And I worked, you know, I stayed with Rob for like seven years, but the drinking was was starting to get to be quite a sort of problem. And then I went to work with Coldplay um, and worked with them for seven years as well. But now, by now, the drinking was was really sort of starting to. Um, it was almost like every day I had to have a drink, you know, as much as I would put it down to social drinking. You know, I never went a day without having a drink. And we used to have an office in Hampstead and quite often I used to go out to get a sandwich at lunch, you know, and like I'll just get something to eat and then I'd walk past the pub and it's like, oh, shall I, shan't I? Yeah, go on then. I'll just pop in and, you know, I'll have a, a cheeky half a cider or something and like six pints later, you know, yeah. trundle back down to the office. There was no one else there, you know, put my feet up, have a kit for about an hour and then think, fuck this, I'm going home, you know. <laughs> It was like, you know, it was, I mean, just, just crazy. But, but the, again, there were times when I, I did get really sort of pissed. And again, with a bit of sort of, you know, there was Coke involved as well, but not, not as much. But, uh, if the Coke was around, then obviously the sort of drinking is that much more sort of profound. And, uh, you know, a couple of times, I think I had three sort of warning shots from, uh, from the, Coldplay guys, Chris, you know, very sort of sweet, lovely guy, but sort of said, look, your drinking is, uh, um, you know, you really need to sort of do something about it. And I felt, I felt bad about it, but I also didn't know what to do about it. You know, it's like I didn't know how to deal with it. And, uh, and then in the end in 2012, I'd, um, I got, a phone call. Well, in fact, the, my production manager phoned me up to say he'd just been fired. And, uh, and then I got a phone call from Chris to say we need to have a meeting the next day. And I just sort of, I kind of know where this is going. 
and I got all these sort of ducks in a row about how I was going to sort of have a have a chat with him. But he just sort of said, look, you know, your drinking is out of control and you've got to do something about it, which is great, but what the fuck do you do about it? You know, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to speak to. I didn't know who to sort of, um, who to deal with about it. Although I'd, at the time I I just started seeing this therapist, this guy who is absolutely sort of brilliant and God bless him, he, he sort of helped, helped me sort of on the way to the path to uh, righteousness. So, uh, um, so I was, you know, the early steps were there. Not that he ever sort of forced me into sobriety or anything, but he helped me understand my sort of my issues. And, and that was great for me, but, uh, but I was also very aware at the time that, uh, that you know, it's fine to say you need help, but if you don't know how to get that help, you know, mm. what do you do and, and where do you get that sort of help from? And so I, um, I actually woke up one morning, well, I think while all this sort of therapy stuff was going, I mean, after I got fired, I still carried on drinking for about a year, you know, partly in sort of anger and uh, frustration and all the rest of it. But by now, the drinking was getting really sort of bad. In fact, my my wife at the time, you know, I used to uh, I used to sneak down in the middle of the night. I used to go to the drinks cupboard that we had. I'd take out there was a bottle of gin that I used to take out, and I used to drink like gin, gin and Coca Cola and gin and oh god just orange juice and squash or or shit you know i mean fuck i fucking hated gin and the only reason i drank it was because i thought that she wouldn't think that i was drinking it because she knew how much i hated gin you know (laughs) and then i'd sort of finish like half a bottle of that and then go around to the office you know that are open 24 hours and fill it back up and put it back in the cupboard and think i was you know sort of doing this all um, on the QT. But, of course, mm. she could hear upstairs all the clinking of the glass mm. and stuff. And and it, it was also funny because after, I, you know, after I got sober, because I used to always say, you know, we had a dog, I'll take the dog out for a walk, you know, and uh, that was sort of, of That's course, going around, yeah, going around the corner for her. Yeah. And uh, she couldn't realise afterwards where we used to sort of go out and I'm like, you know, she'd say, oh, let's pop in here or something. And we'd pop in and they'd be like, all right, how you doing? You know, yeah. oh, how's the dog? And she's like, I didn't know you knew about this part. No, I named God a dog. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did, have, I did actually have a dog. So that wasn't, you know, it wasn't completely wrong but uh but no it was you know all that sort of stuff and it it was it just became it was you know I was very unhappy I um like I said my I was sort of drinking out of real habit now and certainly not happy I mean you know when I was on tour because uh because I'm a tour manager and I'm working with sort of big artists I'd get to my hotel room and the, the hotel would give me one or two bottles of wine you know as a welcome gift it's like for an alcoholic that's fucking again happy yeah. days you know so uh I could sit in my room drinking and I'd wake up, you know, I mean, it was quite a stressful job. So I'd be awake all hours of the day and night, but of course there was wine there and you could just keep sort of going to it. So, and this is the problem with, with alcohol, you know, I think with, with drugs, although drugs now are relatively sort of plentiful everywhere, but certainly alcohol, you know, there's never a problem getting a drink if you want to, it's everywhere, isn't it? You know? Yeah. So I kind of just woke up one morning um the 22nd of october uh 2013 and just said i've got to do something and something's got to change you know and i cannot 
continue my life like this because it's it's I'm in complete and utter despair. And I said, well, the the one thing that I could do that would have a massive dramatic effect is to stop drinking. So I decided that morning that I would stop drinking. And touch wood, I have not had a drink since. Wow. And that was, you just celebrated nine years then? I've just celebrated nine years this weekend. Yeah. Wow. No, that's and incredible. my family and people are like, you know, it's just, it is, it is incredible. You know, I think it's incredible. And I, I thank every, every day of it because the, the transformation and the change is incredible. You know, I mean, it's the, the great thing for me when I decided that I'm now going to stop drinking. The weight that lifted off my shoulders, I can't tell you how, I mean, you know, talk about sort of having divine intervention or or whatever, you know. It was so dramatic because suddenly I was like, fuck, I don't have to worry anymore, Mm. you know. I don't have to worry when I go to the pub, shall I have a drink or shan't I? Because Mm. I have decided I'm not having a drink. And I'm going to, because I'm a stubborn fucker, you know. Most people would contest to that, so I'll agree to that. But I, you know, for me, it was very simple. If I have a drink, and even now, you know, people say, surely after nine years, you know, you could probably have a glass of wine and you'd be okay. And I probably could, and I probably would. But I am never, ever going to put myself in that position because if I have one glass of wine, then who's to say I can't have another or, you know, I decide not to, uh, not to do something. So, uh, so I'm, you know. So you basically, you're, you're very similar to me where you, once you decided, I did exactly the same on that day, right? I, on January the 7th, 2019, I got up and said, I ain't doing it anymore. Like literally I received this text message and that was it. And like you, I'm a stubborn fucker as well. But for me, it's like, I like you, I can't put myself in that compromising. It's not worth the gamble of, oh, I, I might be all right with one glass because it's not worth the risk. So I just won't even negotiate that. And what you say about giving up is the headspace it gives you, mm-hmm. like not to think about it. Because let's face it, when we were drinking, it's as soon as you wake up, it's that negotiation you have in your head, oh. isn't it? It's like, oh, do I drink today or I won't drink today? And then throughout the whole day, this conversation's going round and round and round and round. Well, maybe I can have one later. And then, then well, I will have one, but I better get a couple of bottles just in case. And it is draining, isn't it? And all of a sudden you think, with that non-negotiable, today yeah. I will not drink alcohol, it's like, oh, I've got, I've got all this headspace to... Well, it wasn't, you know, for me, it wasn't, it wasn't so much about shall I, shan't I, you know, it was how, how am I going to sort of, it was planning your day around making sure that you could, you know, when I would get my drinks and I would, you know, I used to go to the airport. I mean, we were flying out of a private sort of terminal. So I would get there early. There'd be booze there. So I'd pour myself two or three large very, very, you know, I mean, we're not talking quadruple, we're talking like a quarter of a large tumbler full of vodka, you know, a Bloody Mary, maybe have two or three of those, then the band would turn up, then I'd sort of, you know, get all of them onto the plane, then I'd go back in and say, I'll just check that nothing's in the, uh, no one's left any bags lying around, have another quick one, you know, then they used to bring me a coffee mug with red wine in it, 
that would uh, so it looked like I was drinking coffee, you know. Then I'd go to the go to the gig. Then uh, then um, there'd be stuff in that while the band were on stage, you know, there's booze in the dressing room. I'd go and uh, I'd go and be sort of drinking that. Then we'd get into the car straight off the stage into vehicles, drive back to the airport. I'd have a bottle of wine that would be in the um side the door thing by the side with a glass i drink that on the way to the plane then i get to the then i get to the plane and i'd be drinking you know maybe a bottle of wine or two bottles and then this guy used to pick me up at luton airport and i used to sit in the front he used to pick me up in a roller sometimes and we used to sit in the front you know and he didn't have a glass sometimes and i'd be having a glass and uh and me bottle and sort of you know I mean, God knows how many bottles of wine I got through in that day, but it, but it wasn't, you know, I didn't think that's a lot or, or whatever. It was just the planning and, you know, part of what I do is plan stuff. So, uh, so it was all about ensuring that I have it had every aspect covered, you know, to, to make sure that I could get a drink. When you look at that, it makes you wonder how you ever did anything. Cause I mean, my job wasn't like yours, but I, I, found sort of techniques that I got away with things. You know what I mean? It's like mm. a stringent planning routine. And that was part of your job, wasn't it? Yeah, because yeah. uh, Adrian Cox, I know, who's been on his podcast, yeah. is tour manager for Bad Manners. And they're mm. like right party animals and that. And he's sober for years now. But you almost like fit your own scheduling of, right, I can drink, as you just said, drink then, drink then, yeah. then I'll better pause and that. And it, like looking back now, do you ever wonder how you did it? Oh God, yeah. And and in fact, it's funny because when I think now, you know, I mean, I've been sober for nine years, and I've been working with, you know, still some pretty, uh, some pretty big acts. And I just wonder quite often what would have happened if I'd been sober when I was dealing with the other stuff. You know, would it have been better or whatever? I don't know. You know, I mean, I. I I won quite a few awards while I was pissed, so maybe uh, yeah. maybe I was better then. I don't think I've I don't think I've won one since I've been sober, so maybe that says enough. <laughs> well, it's not worth the payoff, mate. So when you stop, right? Did you? Because you was drinking a hell of a lot. Mm. Did you just stop? Because you you know what the advice we give out is that if you are drinking that amount, that you do have to seek help from the doctor or whatever. But, you know, I I did just stop, and I think I was lucky to get away with not having serious withdrawals, and I, I just stopped, and it's yeah. dangerous, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think, I think it is dangerous, and I think... But, again, um, I don't know what the... You know, I'm not uh, medically trained, so I don't know the difference with... I think with spirits... If you you know there are people that are drinking two or three bottles of spirits a day and stuff like that, and I I would imagine that that is far more damaging than drinking two or three bottles of wine a day. You know, though neither of them are obviously particularly good, but uh, but you know I'm sure I had had I, well I know I had DTs and I had sort of uh, you know initial trying to sort of deal with it all but also I felt just because of this euphoria and this sense of relief that I think that probably sort of carried me through you know because yeah. I was I was just so happy that this turmoil that I was struggling you know of course it was a big sort of fight and still sort of dealing with shall I shan't I and going past pubs and all that sort of thing you know it's not to say that it was a it was a um walk in a happy, the park. Yeah, yeah certainly not a walk in the park right. but it's it's when you take away that big 
issue about shall I, you know, shall I, shan't I? It's yeah. like, no, I shan't. I'm not yeah. going to have a drink, you know. How um, did you do it? Did you go to AA or did you get to... I, well, again, yeah, I I went to I'd been to AA with uh, um, a previous wife when she was sort of having issues, and uh, and I sort of went along really just as a riding shotgun, you know, didn't think it's got anything to do with me. Um, and when I started going to AA uh, more seriously, I. You know, I enjoyed going to the meetings because I enjoyed the stories and hearing sort of what people had to say in their their relationships with alcohol. Uh, enjoyed is probably the wrong, but it's you know it's it's an informative. I always you mm. know people always think AA is like a terrible thing and a terrible place to go. It's not. You know, I mean, I I say to people, you know, when I meet them in the street, where are you going? I'm off to a meeting. They're like, oh, you poor thing, and I'm like, fuck that. I'm going for a laugh. You know, I want to yeah. get cheered up. You know, yeah. because it can be so um, uplifting. But the thing was that initially when I went, it didn't sort of um, it didn't register with me because all the tales of woe that I was hearing, you know, I was thinking, God, those people, you know, people injecting cider into between their toes and stuff like that. You know, I was thinking that's an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic. You know, I'm just drinking what I'm drinking. I'm just a heavy drinker, you know, as I've been told by someone in AA. So I'm not an alcoholic. Um, and I, you know, I went to quite a few meetings, and uh, there's one that one in Hind Street I used to absolutely sort of love was a uh, um, brilliant one in Central London. Um, but when I suddenly realised that it's actually not about other people's drinking, and it's not about, it's great to listen to their stories, but the what is at stake here is me, me and my relationship with alcohol. Mm. I'm the one, you know, and and you know. When you're, again, when you're an alcoholic, you can lie through your teeth and you can sort of hoodwink anybody into sort of thinking that you're not drinking or you're not doing anything. But when you started lying to yourself and you started kidding yourself about it and not being truthful to yourself, what's the point? You know, where where does it go from there, you know? And mm. once I'd realised, again, through my sobriety, once I'd realised that, that uh, that it's not about other people at all. It's about me, and it's how I deal with it. Which is, like I say, why now I find when people say to me, "You know, you're right going in a pub, or you know, is it all right to have a drink?" So I'm like, "Look, I don't give a fuck what you drink. It's not my. I mean, obviously, you know, I don't want you to die through alcoholism or anything like that. But it's not about me. That that's you and your issues with drink. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. my issue with drink is that I had a problem with it and I'm not going to do it again. And that's it. You can drink all you like, you know, and if you get leery or if it gets boisterous, I'll fuck off, you know, because I can do that as well. I don't have to be around it mm-hmm. if I choose not to, you know, but now I have such a different relationship to it. You know, I'm, I'm aware of its danger. So I do not want to be a part of it. You know, I appreciate that other people, I appreciate some people can go and have a glass of wine and sit there all evening and there's three quarters of it left when they go home. And that's it. You know, for me, I could never walk away from a table when and leave something on there, you know. Yeah. Do you know what? I saw that um, I was in Soho House one night, right? And there's a group of lads. And when they left, there were two half pints of lager on the table and I, and I was sober 
But I thought, what are you doing? Like, I would have beer burgled them as well. Yeah. I'd have to the toilet yeah. and picked them up and downed them. Like, yeah. I could never understand people that could leave, like, half a glass of wine and that. It's like, no, get that in there before I walk. It's a weird mindset, isn't it? Well, I think I think part of it, you know, initially you think, oh, well, I've paid for it. I should, I should, you know, you've got to finish it or whatever. But the difference is that somebody who's not an alcoholic has paid for it as well, and they'd be happy to walk away from mm. it, you know. But an alcoholic can't. You can't leave it, you know. You've got to, uh, you've got to sort of finish it off, and uh, and it's all those little things that that to yourself don't seem like a problem until you stop and you know it's like walking stepping on the rake isn't it and it's suddenly yeah, fucking it's yeah. like jesus what was i doing why was yeah. i doing all that stuff and and as the mist and the fog starts to clear and you sort of realize all these crazy things that you used to do that you that you thought were were normal you know i mean i was chatting to um to the guy from this charity that, and I'll I'll get onto that in a moment. But uh, but I was chatting to him about, you know, he said like I've got a bit of a problem, and uh, and I'm like, what's that? He said, well, I think I've got a problem. I'm not sure, you know, I'm drinking a lot. I'm sort of starting to drink sort of spirits now. I fell out of a window. I blah blah. I'm going, hang on a minute, you fell out of a window? Yeah, I was on the first floor of this place. I fell out of a window. And I, what what is? It's almost like you think it's normal, you know. Yeah, Yeah, I got a parking ticket yesterday. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, let's go back there a minute, you know. So, yeah, so so, um, from my sobriety, you know, I – and I I realised that in our business, you know, how how much a, a problem booze is that I I was at a rehearsal place one day and I'd met up with this guy that I knew worked for a record company and uh and he's like what are you doing and I said well I'm I'm thinking of trying to get a charity together to do something to help people in our business you know because of course drink and drugs are prevalent everywhere you know and it, it doesn't sort of choose who who it affects but in our business, we have a certain sort of relationship with it. And we have a certain sort of, you know, a different kind of thing. And I, and I think that that's a sort of specialist thing. And it'd be good to have like a specialist sort of charity. And he said, well, I'm thinking of the same thing. And I said, well, that's, that's funny, but you're on the, you know, surely in the record companies as people don't have sort of, problems with booze and stuff he's like are you fucking kidding and started telling me the stories you know and you're like wow that is uh you know unbelievable so we got together with a couple of other people and 2016 we launched this uh, charity called music support and uh it's for people in the uk music industry it's for anybody in the business so it's for it's not only for musicians you know it's for truck drivers it's for caterers it's for a bloke who sort of works in the car park at a gig or anyone that's associated with music you know um and we launched a 24-hour helpline and uh and it's been going for six years now and uh it's quite amazing. We've got four full-time members of staff. We run things backstage at festivals. We do this mental health first aid training courses that we've put like four or 500 people through that so that you have someone a bit like a, like a St. John's ambulance person yeah. or something, you know, uh, but uh, in your, you know, companies, uh, agencies, record companies have also taken up on it because of course, like anything else, mental health, you know, can lead to addiction and all the rest of it. So, uh, 
So mental health first aid training is a way of sort of recognising issues that, that are there that perhaps are leading people into sort of um, abuse or whatever. And uh, yeah, and it's it's quite amazing that we've got to, in fact, the, that um, gig that was on the other day for, unfortunately, Taylor Hawkins from um, the Foo Fighters who passed away. Our charity was the charity of choice, you know, and we got the name up on the banners at uh, Wembley Stadium and stuff. And I'm like, Jesus, six years ago, you know, we were in a, a coffee shop on a grazing yeah. road thinking, what the fuck are we going to do? You know, yeah. and we've got the, the logo blazoned at uh, this thing and, and on global sort of TV, you know. I mean, it's it's amazing what you can do if you put your mind to it, you know. Yeah. And I also know that we've, you know, not only helped, I mean, certainly hundreds and I would say thousands of people, but we've saved people's lives as well, you know, which is absolutely amazing. You know, it's we we have regular sort of meetings and we get a thing from our service providers that sort of let us know sort of cases, not sort of people's names and all the rest of it but but you know information about how people are progressing and stuff and and it's it's i mean it is it makes you cry when you see what we've been able to do and and help people that unfortunately you know the national health service is just not geared up to be able to do it doesn't have the resources doesn't have the time and to be able to do something and give something back you know from my sobriety is Amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly like this podcast. It started with an idea in the bathroom cleaning my teeth, and I just thought, um, I might do a pot. I had no idea at all how to do Your Teeth one. are very clean, by the way. You uh, must have been uh, rehearsing. <laughs> <laughs> a lot I've of thought about ones it. in at the moment. But it started from that, and a month later, I launched my first episode, because I'm like that. A bit like when I stopped drinking, yeah. it was like, yeah. oh, I ain't going to drink anymore, and then that was it sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and when this podcast, this is now season eight. And oh. as I said to you before, uh, I've had a few mu- musicians on, like Shara Delican is a bass guitarist to the Gorillas. He says, yeah. you know, when it comes off stage and you've got that huge adrenaline rush of playing in front of thousands and you're sitting in your hotel room on your own mm-hmm. and there might be a bottle of wine in there or or whatever, and you're on your own, and it's how, how do you come down yeah. off of that yeah. without alcohol, you know? And... There are so many people um, I know in the music industry that have suffered heavily with their mental health, and and it, it's also like the the you're just going on and on and on and on. I mean that Adrian Cox I'm talking about. I don't know, honestly don't know. He's is travelling all around Mexico, I think, at the moment. And then I found mm. out he's in Cambridge um, in a couple of weeks' time. It's like, when do you stop? Well, I've just done, I mean, I've just done, uh, I, I work with Roger Waters now. And, yeah, well, uh, we need to talk about that, mate, because he's <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I've just come back last weekend from uh, five months in the States, mm. you know, and I think I had two days off in five months. That's mad. And the last few days I was working 20 and 22-hour days, you know, and literally I'd be up at sort of, five six o'clock in the morning i get to bed at four o'clock the next morning and it's just you know that's it's what you have to do to get the job done you know and and because it certainly on the live side of things but we work very much to a clock you know at eight o'clock 
the band go on stage and that's it, you know, and it's no good. You know, I mean, I know people in the film and the TV world, TV is a bit different, but film, you know, you've got to wait for the weather. You've got to wait for this, that and the other, you know, it's no good when you've got, 20,000 people sat in a gig to say, oh, the band's going to be two or three hours late, you know, because mm. they're having a having a drink or whatever. I mean, obviously, if you're Madonna, you do what the fuck you like because she doesn't even give a shit. But, uh, <laughs> um, but for most of the bands, but, you know, mate of mine um, used to be his job was getting Keith Richards on stage, mm. you know, and you imagine what a job that was in the 70s because they did used to go on three, four, five hours late because no yeah. one, you know, because there wasn't any timing. But nowadays, you have to be on time. You have to do stuff. The, the um, pressure... Uh, on you to to deliver all this stuff is is incredible you know but as you were saying you know i i was chat i just had lunch with a friend of mine in la and i remember him telling me that you know we did a show in milton Keynes with robbie and uh there were like seventy thousand people there and then 45 minutes later he's in his flat in archway in a in a sort of one bedroom flat just sort of sat there wandering around thinking what the fuck do I do now? You know, yeah. how do you go from that? How do I wind down from it? Because it's yeah, and it's yeah. weird. It's weird when you um, when you you know because obviously sort of working on stage, I spend a lot of time on stage, and it's a weird thing because when you go to a gig, certainly you know, and I've I've done gigs with well with Robbie, we had at Nebworth, I think one hundred and thirty five thousand people. When you're in the gig, you're all looking at the stage, but when you're on stage. And you're seeing all those people looking at you. Mm. It's an unbelievably powerful thing. You know, whatever, every movement you've got, all those sort of eyes are moving around mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, and the adulation. And it's a, it's a, it's almost like hero worship, you know, and, uh, and, and that's a big, big buzz and adrenaline thing and how and and for all of you know the crew that are working in you know you're all involved in that thing you're all producing this amazing thing and people go and they have a fantastic time and it's all sort of brilliant and massive and then you know we're with the roger stuff we take it takes us 30 hours to set these shows up because it's so there's like 26 trucks worth of rubbish um, and then four hours to pack it away, you know, and then you're on to the next place. And it's all that rush, 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 adrenaline. And then you get into your, onto your luxurious bus, you know, and what am I going to do now? You know, can't yeah. just put your head down and go to sleep. You know, it's not, you haven't had that, you know, when you, when you've been to work, you come home and maybe you have a couple of hours and you have your tea and watch a bit of TV or something like that. And it's a gradual sort of wind down, but you know, you imagine sort of having a really, really unbelievable day at work and a terrible sort of get home and then bang, got to go to bed because you're up again in three hours time. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, on a much, much smaller scale, I used to do the uh, makeover program on TV and, and we used to like work ridiculous hours, right? Like 14 hours days although it was called 60 minute makeover it went on forever yeah. right uh and then hit the boozing and i was always the last one to go to bed and and sometimes i'll go to bed and drink another bottle of wine that i've sneaked in the room and that you know <laughs> uh till half three four in the morning and uh and then get up at half five like literally mm. having a cat nap and waking up still drunk um but when that show finished, it was like the come down of that was like it, it lasted a week of the come down. So mm. to kind of experience that without that that sort of um, 
the drink to sort of almost, it, I can't imagine what it was like for you to go from all that to then stopping drinking to then, I mean, we all talk about, um, I call it the opening hours, right, for people that I work with. And uh, I say, what time's a bar normally open? They go about five. And then when it gets to about eight, you're okay. Yeah, when I've had my dinner, I've normally got over it then. That's three hours, right? But for you, it's a whole new Mm. Yeah, it it was. But uh, but also there is so much going on that, you know, your life, your your day is filled up with. It's not like you just sit around and wonder what I'm going to do for a few hours. You know, I mean, there's literally work, work, work. You know, you could 24 hours in the day, you know, just there's no way you could easily do 48 hours in a day, you know, and still have sort of stuff left over because it's, you know, it's, it's a a very, very sort of intense way of, and, and also you've got wild cards being thrown at you all the time, but you never kind of know when that's what I would say. It's, it's, you know, I'm pretty much on call 24 hours a day because when that phone rings, You've no idea what's going to be at the end of it or what drama or, or you know, and and things that get sort of thrown in the way that, again, you have to get over because you're working to this schedule of producing a, a show. And, and, you know, I mean, people, have, I'm sure, have all been to things where shows are being cancelled and whatever, but it's a big, big disappointment. How can people access um, music support? Because um, there's a lot of musicians and people in the industry that would be listening to this. So how can they find it? Um, Well, you can go onto the website, which is um, musicsupport.org, and find out there. We've got a a helpline, 0800 030 6789, that you can call if you've you've got issues or you're in crisis. But I'd say go online and have a look at... uh, at the website, because there's a lot of information on there about um, getting help. There's a lot of information if you want to help. You know, we have, uh, we run lots of different events that people can sort of get involved in and find out more about. Um, or we, you know, if people just want advice or even, you know, the helpline is is there if people are struggling or they just want to have a chat. I mean, that was something that I found initially, because of course, when we launched, you know, we were all on the helpline. We were also sort of taking it in turns and I would say that 70 or 80 percent of it is just having someone that you can talk to mm. that understands that gets it you know and that isn't I mean famously we had somebody that went to see a, a doctor and uh, and the doctor's like so what you know what job do you do and they're like well I'm in the music business they're like wow that must be absolutely amazing to be in the music business I'm like well it was so fucking amazing you know why am I here? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's might, it might sound glamorous, but when you're in it, it's not, you know, it's yeah. grafting like anything else. And, and of course, when drink and drugs take, take effect, then you're, you know, you're desperate as you would be in any, uh, any sort of position. So, uh, but yeah, the helpline is great. And, uh, I was just chatting to, uh, to, to like I said that there was, um, somebody I've got to sort of help out at the moment that's sort of struggling a bit. And I spoke to our service person that she's so brilliant, you know, and, uh, we've got links to, um, different rehab places. If we can't help or, you know, if, if somebody phones up and needs help or something and we can't deal with it, then we get a clinical assessment for them. And then maybe they, they need to go into rehab. Then, and if they can't deal with the funding, then we try and get funding from different people. And, uh, 
you know, and, and then the all kinds of follow up stuff as well. It's, it's quite amazing, you know, that where it's, where it's got to in just in those six short years. Yeah. And, and especially when, um, you were told by Chris from Coldplay, <laughs> you know, you need to sort it out and you didn't know where to go. So this is a fabulous opportunity for people and I, i'll tell you what mate i think you're a top bloke and i'll tell you what i'm going to do as well i'm going to put the link on my bio on my instagram that i've got a list of resources so i'll add that too okay, so great. it's easy That's brilliant easy for people to find straight away as well uh, and i would I'd like find- i would like to i would like to say though that chris and the guys at coldplay have been very supportive of mm. support and have, have you know helped us and funded us and all the rest of it so it wasn't only that he was like you need to oh he was through concern wasn't it, it he was concerned and, and he realizes no and he realizes and they've been very supportive and helpful as have a lot of other sort of artists as well so it's um you know it's not just something like we don't want to deal with it you know so no not at all and i didn't i didn't hear it that way i I heard it as he was being concerned and you know and also it's like when people don't quite understand uh alcoholism or whatever it's different for them to look at it you know it's like somebody comes to me and says oh i've got a problem i bet my wages on a horse and i wouldn't get it so i'm not a gambler do you know what i mean so well uh, yeah i was just i was just reading that book by that uh cricketer i can't remember his name unfortunately who was who was uh same thing you know who was a, a gambler and he had something like 150 different uh, accounts going at the same time, you know, and I'm like, how the, how do you manage to do all that? You know, but yeah. again, it's that addiction and, and something that I've learned through my sobriety and through sort of dealing with it is, you know, not everyone's an addict, you know, there are right. a lot of people that, that quite happily can put a bet or have a glass of wine or do whatever. Yeah. And it means absolutely nothing to them. And that's fantastic. And, mm. and it's, I'm, I'm really happy for them, you know, but other people, we know it's an illness, you know, mm. so other people have got that illness and they can't sort of stop and, and they don't always recognize that they've got that illness oh. as well you know so it's it's uh it's trying to educate people all the time and and one thing that i would say is uh you know since we started our charity and whether it's just a timing or whatever but but mental health and support and stuff like that is is certainly not a dirty word as it was you know it was something that people didn't people wouldn't want to say i've got an issue because they're afraid that they would be victimized in some way or whatever but now it's you can speak to people and there are there are mechanisms to get help you know and and help is at hand and people are aware of it and you know our charity is out there now we put stickers up in wherever you know in itineraries we we have stuff and, and we tell people about it and so so it's it's always sort of spreading the word but there's much more sort of information companies have their own mental health people they they take that very seriously now so uh, you know we're lucky that we were around at the time that all that was happening and and we're part of it i think it's absolutely brilliant mate and uh i think you are as well and the way you turn your life around and i feel so grateful i feel like i know you you know, like oh. we've only chatted twice, and breakfast is on you anyway. Breakfast is, yeah, yeah, it's definitely. <laughs> well, it'd be on, uh, it'd be on Roger Waters, but uh, oh yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. get Roger we'll, we'll to talk breakfast. about it over breakfast because honestly, I used to lay there absolutely sloshed listening to Pink Floyd all the time. You know, Division Bell album. There was a track on there that I used to play over and over again, thinking that I was in a Pink Floyd video, but then I'd wake up two hours later staring at a 
a dark room. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, well, it was it's like funny because the, uh, the the when I was twelve years old, the very first concert that I went to um, in Bristol at the Colston Hall. Um, top, it's in those days where they used to have like six or seven bands on the bill, and top of the bill was Jimi Hendrix. Wow, but the wow. the opening band was Pink Floyd. Wow. And so the fact that I am now Roger's tour manager and, uh, and bless him, he even sort of, uh, uh, he had me in his dressing room. I got summoned to his dressing room the other day and, uh, and I thought, oh, fucking hell, what's going to go on here? You know, it's like, oh, this, this could be serious. And, uh, and he was just like so sweet and so lovely and sort of said that, well, a brilliant job I've done and everything. And I just thought, fuck, you know, this is from a legend. Like yeah. this to give you that kind of, and he even said, "Can I have a little hug?" You know, and I was oh, like, "Jesus!" Lovely, you know, man. from having gone from as a little kid to to yeah, see him on stage and now sort of not only meet him but to be appreciated by him is like, yeah, it doesn't get any better than that. That is it? fantastic, mate. Thank you so much for joining me. I've really enjoyed today. It's a pleasure meeting you, mate. Well, it's been the the pleasure's been mine, and uh, and I'm so grateful that you've that you've had me on. And uh, long may your uh, your podcast continue. You know, the more the more things like this that there are out there to show people that there's a you know there is help and salvation. There's another way of dealing with things. And you know, our tagline with music support is "You're not alone." You know, mm. and things like this show people that. And that's always the thing that that when you are struggling, you do think you're on your own, you know, but when you come and find something like this and you have a listen and you see that there's a lot of other sort of numpties around that were probably exactly like you yeah. and are now sort of like, you know, making a, a go of it themselves that there's, if we can do it, there's got to be hope uh, for the rest of the uh, world. Absolutely, there? mate. <laughs> All right, mate. Lovely seeing you. Have a great rest of the day, and I'll see you uh, for breakfast soon. For breakfast, yeah. I'll get the eggs on now. All right. Thank you. All right. See you later. Bye, mate. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. Don't forget, you can also order a copy of my number one best-selling book, One for the Road, It's full of helpful and useful tips to help you stop drinking. You can order it today off Amazon. You can also find me for extra support on my Instagram account at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.